And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in the book of Revelation, we do read that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. And blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep these things which are written in it, for the time is near. And so that's where we left off. We covered those three verses last time. And as I want to remind you at this time in our study that I think the, the five most important words that we have in this book are the revelation of Jesus Christ. And to keep priority and to keep in mind that this book is going to reveal Jesus to us more clearly. It's going to reveal to us how Jesus indeed, that he's on the throne, he's in control, that he is going to come back. He's going to establish his kingdom. Uh, he's going to judge the nations. We know that uh, after that, that uh, there's a great white throne judgment, the judgment of those who have rejected him. And then there's a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And so we're going to see this. And, and as we do, this is our future. These prophecies that must shortly come to pass. And as we go through this book, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things. We're going to be talking about uh, the tribulation period. We're going to be talking about uh, the sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments and the vial judgments. We're going to be talking about the 144,000 witnesses and the two witnesses, Mystery Babylon, all these different subjects that are going to come up, the Antichrist, of course. But the thing to keep in mind that this book is written to us so that Jesus is revealed to us more clearly, his glory, his power, that all things today are coming to a conclusion, and that is that God's going to establish his kingdom. So you and I as believers, we can be excited. Uh, we needed to be reminded of these things as they did in the first century, because you see, in the first century, as we know that John, he is the human instrument that writes these words down as these prophecies are given to him that must shortly come to pass. Not that they might come to pass. These things are going to happen. And as we go through it, we'll see that there's an outline given to us in this chapter that we'll look at later. But John here, as at the end of the, the first century, he's the elder statesman of the church. He is the last of the living apostles uh, that is on the scene. Paul the Apostle and Peter had been put to death, martyred uh, under the persecution of Caesar Nero. And after Caesar Nero, he persecuted the Christians very heavily in a very cruel way, came Vespasian. And Vespasian, he lightened up the persecution on the Christians because he was dealing with certain uh, situations that overwhelmed the, the Roman government. Uh, and uh, the uh, know that he was focused on Jerusalem. He was sent his son Titus. In 70 AD to destroy Jerusalem and of course uh, they leveled the city they destroyed the second temple and then after his reign would come Titus and then Titus, who was the son of Vespasian, had a brother named Domitian. And Domitian comes to rule as the emperor in 81 AD. And he began to persecute the Christians very heavily. He hated the Christians. And as it is told to us historically... That it was those who were brought before, you know, Domitian, that he would force them to say that I am God, that, that you need to say that Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God. And if they did not do that, they were brutally killed. And usually that was the Christians and the Jews. So here's this persecution that's going on. It's a government-led uh, persecution. It would result in uh, thousands upon thousands of Christians being put to death for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And Domitian gets word, church tradition tells us, that John is the last of the original apostles that is alive. And so he's thinking, if I can get rid of this John, who was an elder at this time, it is believed that 69 AD, right before the destruction of Jerusalem, that John, that he would leave Jerusalem. He would go to Ephesus where he's an elder there at the church at Ephesus. He had been an elder there for nearly 30 years. And we see that John, as he is an elderly man in his 80s, 
perhaps close to 90 years old, that Domitian is thinking, if I can get rid of John, the last of the original apostles, then this thing called Christianity is going to die out. So tradition tells us that Domitian comes, arrests John, and there in the amphitheater in Ephesus, that before the people, they lowered him into a pot of boiling oil. And when John is there lowered in that, that oil that's boiling, it didn't hurt him. He raises his hand. He begins to praise the Lord. And Domitian, seeing that, the crowd had been yelling and screaming. They stopped. And Domitian, he says, that get him out of here. So they banished him to the island of Patmos. A rocky, barren island. And see, understand this, that a new generation of Christians had come on the scene. The earliest of the Christians, the original apostles, they had seen the Lord work miracles. They had seen that it was the Lord, His, uh, you know, the tomb was empty. They saw the resurrected Lord. Uh, and here's a new generation of Christians that they had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They were not eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he would say that 500 people saw him at once. But they believed by faith. They believed the eyewitness accounts uh, of, of those original apostles and the others that saw Jesus in the early church. Uh, we know that as they are passing off the scene, this new generation is hearing the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, the, the teachings of Jesus. They, they know that uh, the miracles were true and they had come to faith and they had also come to know that Jesus Christ was going to come back. And you see, when John writes this apocalypse of Jesus Christ and brings it back to them after that Domitian dies and the persecution at that time is over and John goes back to Ephesus it is believed that they needed to know they needed to know that generation going through persecution just as us in our generation we need to know that the Lord is on the throne that he's in control that indeed he is going to come back and as John is exiled to Patmos that we know that he receives this revelation of Jesus Christ. And I hope that brings comfort to you and to me because in your time where you feel like that you're isolated, that you're in a rocky, barren, difficult situation, it is important that you and I, that we see Jesus more clearly, that we need to know that he's on the throne, that he is coming back and we will win. And this book, listen, was meant to be read and meant to be studied, not to be ignored. So there is a promise that we read there in verse 3 of a special blessing. There's, there's a blessing when we read all the books of the Bible, but this is a unique special blessing to those who hear this book, those who read this book, and keep the things that are written. So let's continue to be blessed as we now pick it up at verse 4 that we read John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So after introducing the intention of the book, uh, to reveal Jesus more clearly and fully, to show that he is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he's going to rule and reign, the apostle then addresses the seven churches were, uh, that were in proconsular Asia, or that is Asia Minor. It's today that area that is called Turkey. And as we are going to continue, we're going to see the seven churches that are listed in chapter 1 here, and then when we go to chapters 2 and 3, that Jesus is going to turn to each one of those churches. These are seven literal churches that existed in the first century in proconsular Asia. And as you map them out, it's kind of like a circle. They're located geographically in that area of Turkey that makes a circle. And Jesus is standing in the midst of these seven churches. He will turn to each one of them and he will address them. He writes a letter to them. And as we look at these seven churches, it's interesting because these are not the only churches that are in proconsular Asia. Of course, they're not the only churches that were established uh, in the first century, but we know that Jesus chooses these seven churches to write a letter to and to address. And we're going to see that number seven oftentimes in this, the book of Revelation. Uh, seven is the number that comes up quite a, bit, uh, quite a bit. Seven is the number of completion. Um, we know that there's seven churches. We're going to read about seven lampstands, uh, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, 
seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven bowls, seven thunders, and seven heads, seven crowns, seven mountains, seven kings. So that number we're going to see repeatedly. But I, I do want to point out that these churches in Proconsular Asia were probably established, many of them, when Paul, on his third missionary journey, he, as you read in Acts chapter 19, had established himself as base of operation there in the city of Ephesus. And for two years, he's teaching at the school Tyrannus. As the city is, revival has broken out. Many are getting saved. So these young men are coming and they're hearing the scriptures. They're being taught the scriptures. Paul would say to the Ephesian elders that I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God's word. And then these young men would go out, it is believed, and they would plant churches there in Proconsular Asia. We also know what is interesting as these seven churches are addressed uh, by Jesus in the book of Revelation that Paul in the New Testament writing epistles, he would write to how many churches? To seven of them. He would write to the churches of Galatia, the church at Thessalonica, those are the early epistles. Then the church at Rome that we're going through right now, that's three. He would write to the church at Corinth. And then he would write the prison epistles of Ephesians, Colossians, and come on folks, Philippians. So seven churches in the epistles that are written to them. I find that to be quite interesting. But I do want to say this. That the church is important to Jesus. And as Christians, I pray that we never think, well, church, it was important to me at one time in my life or to my family, but not anymore. Now, that's for young Christians. I, I'm more mature. I've been through the church thing. I've been to church. I've served in the church. Listen, Jesus is into the church. He is the cornerstone of the church. And here we see he's standing in the midst of the church. And he has a message to the church. And I think that when we get to chapters 2 and 3, they're some of the richest chapters that we have in the whole book of Revelation. That we can make application because it speaks to us individually. It speaks to our church as well. And we need to understand that the church is meant to be a blessing and benefit to us as Christians. And we are told in Hebrews chapter 10 that we are not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. As is the manner of some, the author of Hebrews says, especially when you see the day approaching. What day? The day of the Lord that we're going to read about in chapters 6 through 18 of the book of Revelation. Revelation. Listen, don't go missing. Make sure that you stay in fellowship, that you're in a church that is teaching the word of God, that loves Jesus. So the church is important to him. And as he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, we continue in verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, his throne. And so many of the epistles begin, of course, with um, this greeting, this dual greeting, grace and then peace. And again, it's always in that order, just as we saw in the book of Romans. It's always grace before peace. And John here isn't just talking about political peace as he mentions grace and peace to you. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there has not been one day of peace on this planet. There may be areas where, you know, there's no war, but there's been a war, a battle, violence going on somewhere in the world. And this book will show us that there will be no peace in this world until the Prince of Peace comes. And as you read the book of Daniel, Daniel, which is called the forerunner to the book of, of Revelation, that Daniel really emphasizes that point. And so John, who is addressing those who would not experienced political peace as Rome was persecuting them, but rather uh, he is talking about a peace in their souls and peace with God. You recall in chapter 5, verse 1 of Romans, that the benefits of, of being justified, that is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is that you have peace with God, no longer at war with God, no longer at enmity uh, with God, but you have peace with God. If you are a believer, you have peace with God. And remember that. Listen, he's not angry at you. He's not at war with you. 
Sometimes Christians think that God must be just so disgusted with me. I fail, I falter. And as we're going to read in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, Paul writes something so incredible. He says that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now, that means tonight, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because you have peace with God. You have peace with God because Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for your sins and he rose again and you've put your faith and trust in him. So we have peace with God and and also we have the peace of God in our lives as we walk with him, as we trust him, as we look to him. And, And it's a peace that he places in our hearts. And as we have the grace of God, then we have the peace of God. Now, it is a peace, a true peace that only comes from him. It doesn't come as you hear others that say, oh, I have a peace. New Agers would say, you know, but I'm seeking peace within myself. Just kind of focus and meditate and breathe, you know, properly in with the good, out with the bad. You need to concentrate on the inner self. Discover the peace that is deep within you. I'll be honest. I'll speak for myself. That I find that if I focus too much on myself, man, I see all the shortcomings and the cruddiness. I get discouraged. doesn't give me peace. I keep my focus on the Lord, who's so good. Some people try to find peace in something or someone in a relationship or in liquor or drugs or money or popularity or whatever. The whole world is looking for peace. And that peace in our hearts only comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no lasting permanent peace apart from Jesus Christ and knowing him. Doesn't it bring you peace? I'm sure it does. You say that tonight. I know that Jesus loves me that I'm forgiven, that I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to rule and reign with him in the kingdom. And it brings peace and it comes because we have experienced the unmerited favor of God. So this greeting here, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, speaking uh, of this beautiful description of God, uh, speaking, first of all, that God is. You see, the Bible tells us that God exists. And have you ever noticed that the Bible doesn't argue for the existence of God? But the Bible simply states and puts that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And listen, if you can believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then the rest of the book is you can put your faith in. You can trust the rest of the book. You can believe the rest of the Bible. You can believe the miracles, the stories that are told to us. You can believe that God created a large fish to come along, aside a boat, when Jonah was thrown over and swallowed him, and that he was sustained for three days. We can believe that. Why? Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if he created the heavens and the earth, and he's all-powerful and almighty God, then he can create that large fish to come along and swallow Jonah and then barf him up on the shore so he can go to Nineveh. <laughs> and besides, because there are those who will come along and say, oh, the, you know, the story of Jonah and the large fish and in the belly, that's just an allegory. It's just a myth. You know, it didn't really happen. It's to teach us a lesson. It really did happen. And we can trust that it happened. And we know that Jesus, he believed in Jonah. That he was in a large fish, the belly of a large fish for three days. Because the religious leaders came and they asked him for a sign. He said, no sign is going to be given to you except for the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish. And and when you read that story, there's Jonah. And, you know, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He's stubborn. He gets on a boat, goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. And and all of a sudden, he's thrown overboard. And he's there in the belly. And the gastrointestinal juices are all around him. And he gets barfed up. He's probably bleached white. He has seed weed stuck around his, you know, head. And he goes to Nineveh. He's saying, judgment in 40 days. They probably thought he was a ghost. And so they repent. They said, you know, we're going to end up like this guy if we don't repent. 
how stubborn Jonah was. I, you know, it's going to be interesting to meet him when we get to heaven. But listen, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a large fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in, in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? Here's a sign for you, this generation, for every generation, and that is the resurrection. Besides, as I, I read about Jonah, you see, I've been in that belly of a large fish because of my stubbornness and because of my rebellion. And it says that he was there for three days, then he prayed. So I picture him just sitting there. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. And then he couldn't take it anymore, and he began to pray. He was broken. And perhaps maybe you're in a similar place here tonight. And in your stubbornness and in your rebellion, God has been dealing with you. And you're sitting there going, I'm not going to forgive. I'm not going to forgive that person. I'm not going to talk to that person. I'm not going to give that thing up that you're telling me to. Whatever the case may be. And he's going to break you. But he's going to be there when you're ready to cry out to him. So we can believe the Bible because in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's the fool that says in his heart there is no God, the psalmist writes. So God is, he exists, that ought to affect every detail of our lives that should really impact the way that we think and what we do and the way that we live. God is, he is real. And he was, there never was a time he wasn't. He's always existed from all eternity past. Not everyone who claims to be a Christian believes that. You have the Mormons. The Mormons believe that, that God didn't exist from all eternity past. Matter of fact, the doctrine of the Mormon is, is that if you're a good Mormon, you get sealed in the temple with your wife, and you go to the third heaven, and there are seven levels in the third heaven that you can progress, and you can become a god, and you can create a planet, you can create a little universe, and that you can populate that planet as you, God the Father, and God the Mother, have spirit children, and they'll populate that planet. That is a doctrine doctrine of the Mormons. That's what they believe. They believe Jesus is not eternal, that he was the first of the spirit children that were born, and he's the brother of Lucifer. We know as we went through the book of Isaiah, you recall, it was very, very clear that the Lord says that I am God and there is no other, and I am from everlasting to everlasting. The oldest lie in the Bible, the serpent said to Eve, you eat of that tree, you'll be like God. Listen, there's one God from everlasting past to everlasting future. And it's not you, it's not me. It is God Almighty declared in the scriptures for you and for me. So we see that this description, God who is and to him who was and to him who is to come. And that, of course, speaks of Jesus. He's going to come back. And that's the climax of this book. But it, I want to say this, that he comes to you tonight. Who perhaps are on that rocky, barren island, feeling dry, wondering if the Lord sees you. He does. He comes to you tonight and you can call out to him. And as we continue in verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, we read. So now John bringing a greeting from God the Holy Spirit. And of course, there's only one Holy Spirit. And we can reference Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. We are told that the Holy Spirit has seven different attributes or aspects uh, of the Holy Spirit. There's one Holy Spirit. There's not seven Holy Spirits. One Holy Spirit. And with seven different aspects defined for us in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's number one. The spirit of wisdom, that's two. And understanding, that's three. The spirit of counsel, that's four. And might, that's five. The spirit of knowledge, that's six. And the fear of the Lord, that's seven. So there are seven different aspects um, that we see here 
of one Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit having those characteristics. And he has them all in fullness and in perfection. Now, another point of reference may be in Zechariah chapter 4, when you read verses 2 through 10, but it talks about there that these are the seven eyes that go throughout the whole earth, um, the seven eyes of the Lord. We're going to read about in Revelation chapter 4, the seven lamps before the throne. So we'll talk more about that. But keep in mind, because people ask, is there seven Holy Spirits? No, only one Holy Spirit with seven different aspects of the Holy Spirit. So grace of God and the peace of God comes from the Father, the Holy Spirit, and then verse 5, from Jesus Christ. Notice that you have all three persons of the Trinity there in verses 4 through 5. And the next time that you see Jesus Christ together is in the doxology of, at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 21. And so from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, a beautiful description of Jesus. First of all, he's the faithful witness. You remember that in that upper room that Philip said, show us the Father that it may suffice us. And Jesus said, oh, Philip, you've been with me all this time. I think Jesus had a voice of just disappointment. Philip, you've been with me all this time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And if you want to know the heart of the Father, the nature and the essence of the Father, then look to me. Look to me. He would say, Jesus, in John chapter 10, that the Father and I are one. And Colossians chapter 1 is told to us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That is the exact representation of God. And if you want to know God, then you need to look to the faithful witness, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness. And that's why we study the life of Jesus. That's why it's very important that we know him. He is faithful, and he will be faithful to you and whatever it is that you're going through. His word will be faithful to you. He will be faithful not to leave you or forsake you. And he will be faithful to work in your life. And he will be faithful to hold you in his hand. He's the faithful witness. And I pray for you and for me tonight that we would be a faithful witness for him. So he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent in creation. The firstborn, the priority from the dead is speaking about that Jesus was the first to die and resurrect from the grave, never to, to die again. You see, in the Old Testament, you had Elijah and Elijah that they resurrected certain individuals, but they would die again. Even Jesus resurrected uh, Jairus' daughter there in Capernaum. And then also we read about Lazarus that came forth after being in the tomb for four days, but they would die again. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, as we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He is the first to rise from the grave, to conquer sin and death, to never die again. He's the firstborn of the dead, and then he's a ruler of the kings of the earth, we are told thirdly. And I just wonder, I just wonder how many kings and how many presidents and how many prime ministers know this. I pray and I hope that our president does. We need to pray for our leaders. And that our leaders need to understand, many of them don't, that they really are subject to him. That he's the one on the throne. That he's the one that sets those in authority over us. It seems like no way, how can it be? There's nothing but confusion and chaos and division in this world. But he is in control and everything is culminating to where he's going to come back and establish his kingdom. Remember the Christmas story and the story of Jesus' first coming, his first advent, that Luke chapter 2, that uh, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world shall be registered for new taxes. And here is Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He utters this decree, and all of a sudden the whole empire is in transition. People have to go back to their place of ancestry to register for the census and for new taxes. And this powerful, proud emperor thought that he was in control but he wasn't he was just a pawn in the hand of God that wanted to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem from Nazareth so that his son would be born 
in the place that he said that he would be born. He was the one that is in control. And he's in control today. And so in verse 5, we continue to read, To him who loved us, loves us, is what the, the present ongoing tense is, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He loved us. We know from Romans chapter 5 that Christ died for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us when we were at our best, when we got our act together, when we decided to believe in him. He loved us while we were yet sinners. That amazes me. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that he set his love on you before the world was even made. Isn't that amazing? And it says, to him who loved us, he loves us. If he loved us then, before the world was made, and he loved us before we came to him and put our faith and trust in him, know that he loves you now. And know that he loves you tonight. And these Christians needed to know that Jesus loves them. They had seen their fellow disciples being killed. These Christians had seen their loved ones be set on fire and fed to lions and beheaded. And they needed to know that your love remains, Lord, and always will. His love is unconditional towards you. His love is not determined on your goodness and your togetherness. It is not dependent upon you. God's love is not conditional. He doesn't have strings attached. His love is indescribable, unmeasurable, unsearchable as what we are told in the scriptures. Now maybe you have lived a life or grew up in life to where you know love was always conditional. Maybe you were involved in a relationship of some sort where love was conditional. If you do this, if you're this person, if you prompt me up and confirm me, if you do what I, I, I like, I'll love you. Otherwise, I'm going to withdraw my love from you. But I want you to know this and never forget that God's love towards you is unconditional. You cannot make God not love you. Now, some people try real hard <laughs> in their rebellion, and then they're shaking their fist at God. And it is the love of God that can break down the hardest of hearts. I don't know why anybody would want to reject the love of God. And you see, it was that love that motivated Jesus to go to that cross, to save you, to wash you from your sins by his own blood, to bring you in relationship with the Father and give you the hope of heaven. You know, so wonder the scriptures declared that it's a loving kindness of God that brings men to repentance. Remember Romans chapter 2? And may the love of God for others be our message to others around us. That his love is constant. And he died for you because of his love for you. And his love remains for you and for me. And God is love. It was that love that caused the Father to send His Son and the Son to go to the cross. And if you don't go away with anything else here tonight, I hope that you never forget that the Lord's love is set upon you and He loves you. And maybe you're here tonight and your heart is full of hurt or loneliness or confusion. Will you please... Make some room for him in his love for you. To allow him to fill your heart with his love. And to bring the comfort and peace and wisdom and strength that you need. He loves you the way that you are. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. And he wants to change you, forgive you. He wants you to live in that newness of life as you walk with him. He, he wants you to not walk after the flesh. He wants what is best for you. He wants to protect you. And he wants to, you to experience that abundant life as you abide in him and to live life the way it was meant to be lived. And because of his love, you can trust him and you can rest in that love that he has for you. And we are washed by the blood of Jesus, not with gold or silver or corruptible things, as Peter writes. Do you realize that not all the gold and silver in the world could not redeem you? purchase you out of sin. You are more valuable than all the gold and silver that is in the world. Will you please remember that 
as Jesus went voluntarily because of his love for you. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him, verse 6 tells us, glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So be it. It is better translated, not kings, but there's only one king, but a kingdom of priests. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into the marvelous light. In Revelation chapter 5, we're going to see uh, this, this uh, multitude before the throne of God, which I believe is you and me. And we're going to sing a new song. And we're going to sing that you have made us a kingdom of priests. Now in the Old Testament, some of you know this because we've gone over it, that the priests, they had two main responsibilities. One was to represent God to the people. It is, you know, the priests of the Old Testament representing God to the people, telling them about the heart of God, the revelation of God that was given. They were there to represent God to the people, and that is what we are to do as priests. You see, you're the priest in your home, Dad. You are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. And we are to represent God to the people who we have opportunity to minister to, those who are linked to us in our lives. And we are to reveal God's heart to them, God's truth to them, speak the truth in love. We are to represent God to the people in the way that we live because that also is a witness to them of the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. And you recall that it was Paul that told Timothy, Timothy, be an example in word and contact, in love and spirit and faith and impurity. And then the second responsibility is to represent the people to God. In the Old Testament, uh, the people brought their sacrifices to the priest. They would burn incense that represented the prayers of the people there at the temple. And you and I, we are to represent the people to God. Do you pray? Parents, are you praying for your kids? Are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying for your relatives, neighbors, and those that you know? Are you praying for them? We need to lift them up in prayer. Are you willing to give a sacrifice of service to others? I I hope that we would do that and how we need to do that. And then in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. During the ministry of John the Baptist, at Jesus' first coming, he said, Behold, didn't he, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now we're told here, behold, it means to study, to consider Jesus' second coming. He is coming with clouds. So are we talking literal clouds? Are we talking, you know, cumulus clouds? Nimbulous clouds, perhaps it is speaking that he is going to come in the clouds. We know Acts chapter 1, as he ascended into heaven, he was taken up into the clouds, literally. Now John says that he's going to come back in the clouds. I like to watch clouds. I don't know about you, but I can sit and watch the clouds all day, especially in the spring, the summer, and, and I love to watch clouds. It's it, it just, just like to do it. And when the storms come... And where I live, I can see clear up towards Wyoming. I can see down south towards Denver and the storm clouds. When they come, I love to watch the lightning storms. But it does remind me, when we talk about clouds, that the storm clouds are gathering. They are gathering, folks. And Jesus said to the religious leaders, you can discern the weather, but not to come into the Son of Man. So is he talking about clouds, literal clouds? Is John referring you know, to Jesus, second of all, perhaps a coming with a cloud of witnesses. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 declares that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Jude says that he comes with 10,000s of his saints. I remember one of the times that we were coming uh, to Israel in, in our study tour. I remember that we're descending through the clouds into Tel Aviv, into Israel. And I remember just looking out. I was right there. And it was so cool. The clouds were so cool. And I remember thinking, this is what it's going to be like. Because we're going to come back with him riding on white horses. Revelation chapter 19. This is so cool trying to look at the landscape to kind of notice it because hey I want to know where we're at when we come back but it was so cool to kind of think about that we're going to come back with him he comes with ten thousands of his saints 
Or could it thirdly be speaking of God's glory? Cloud is associated with, in the Old Testament with God's glory, the pillar of cloud amongst the children of Israel. There in the tabernacle, speaking of the kind of glory of God. Uh, here, uh, Jesus perhaps speaking that he's going to come with great glory, that uh, every eye will see him. So which is it? What's he referring to? To literal clouds? To, you know, the cloud of witnesses? To great glory and power? I think it could be all three. Listen, remember this, that when he does come back, every eye will see him. Will you underline that? Especially to the one who might say, well, you know, Jesus came back to Jehovah Witnesses, say he came back in spirit or he came back in secret. It's like, I don't think so. The Bible is very clear. Jesus said himself, the scriptures indicate very clearly that when he comes back, it's not going to be in secret. He's going to come back literally, physically to this earth. And every eye is going to see him come back. Every eye will see him, verse 7, even they who pierced him. Interesting. Remember that I told you last week, there's about 265 verses with references to the Old Testament. There's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 265 of those verses contain portions of 555 verses of the Old Testament. In other words... Revelation is filled with Old Testament examples. You have 27 from the book of Exodus, 22 from Jeremiah, 43 from the book of Psalms, 79 from Isaiah, 43 from Ezekiel, 53 from the book of Daniel, 15 from the book of Zechariah. And here is a reference to Zechariah chapter 12 where we read, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me, that is Jesus, whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieves for him as one grieves for a firstborn. A specific reference to the Jews at the end of the tribulation period when they realize that Jesus is their Mashiach. Jesus said, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they will not be the only ones mourning. That we know that those who reach the end of the tribulation period, unbelievers, that they will be mourning when he returns because he's going to judge the nations. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. But the whole world is going to see him when he returns. You and I, we rejoice. We rejoice at the coming of the Lord. And then in verse 8, and I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Alpha, of course, speaks of the first letter um, of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. The message of Jesus, his title given, he is before all things. He existed from all eternity past. He will remain beyond all things to all eternity future. He is the end. He is the Almighty. And that means everything between the beginning and everything between the end, like right now, tonight, you can trust him and you can have confidence in him and you turn to him. He's in control and he can work in any situation that you're presently going through because he is the almighty. In verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that was called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We've talked about how John ended up on that island of Patmos. Listen, it was a rocky, barren island, as I've said. It was not Hawaii. It was not Maui. It was not the Caribbeans. It was a barren place about 25 miles off the coast of Turkey. It was in a chain, Patmos, of about 50 islands. This island of Patmos was about 10 miles long and five miles across. It was a prison island. It was a banished island. Eusebius, the early church leader, would write that if you went to that island, you did not come back. You did not return. Tradition says that John was there for 16 months till the death of Domitian. That he had to work. He's in his 80s. Some say he's close to 90 years old. Can you imagine that you have to work, labor, hard labor on that island as he's there? He's cold. 
And John here refers to himself as a servant. And now verse 9, he refers to himself as a brother and companion with you in these difficult days. He and the other apostles never, never elevated themselves, promoted themselves. It's tragic today what we see in some circles of Christianity and celebrity Christians, you know, pastors and teachers and evangelists or whatever. John was an amazing man of faith. He walked with the Lord. He referred to, uh, as he's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved because he had close fellowship with Jesus. He was an eyewitness of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. He was a great theologian. He was a prophet. He's the elder statesman of the church, but he was also a man of humility. And he had a love for the people because he was known as the apostle of love and he had a shepherd's heart. And now for the first time in over 60 years, he hears the voice of the Lord. He hears the voice of the Lord. Remember at Christmas, that the message that was given to Joseph that your wife Mary, that she's going to conceive and bear a son, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and you shall call his name Jesus, that it might be fulfilled of the prophet that is Isaiah. Emmanuel, God with us. For 400 years from the Old Testament Malachi to the New Testament, 400 years of silence. They had not received a revelation from God. There was no prophet in the land for 400 years. They were under the bondage of the, you know, somebody, the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And God had not been heard in those silent years. And they were in a barren, difficult place. And all of a sudden, the promise comes that Mary is carrying the one that was spoken of of Isaiah Emmanuel, God with us. And maybe tonight, just maybe tonight, that you feel isolated. And maybe that the Lord's been silent to you. That he desires to speak to you. He desires to speak to your heart through the word in a still small voice to tell you this, Emmanuel, God is with you. He is with you. And John here says, on this rocky, barren island, I'm your brother and companion. We're in this thing together. We're in this thing together, church. Listen, we need each other, especially in the way that this world is going. And I will say this, as he says that he was put on the island for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, which means that John's testimony for Jesus and about Jesus and because you are a man or a woman of the word of God and have a testimony of Jesus Christ, you know where you're going to find yourself. You're going to find yourself on Patmos. You will find yourself at some time in your life on Patmos. For the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, you see, those two things not only put John on that island, put him where he was, but it declared who he was. It put him on that island because of who he was. And you will find yourself on that island because of who you are, a man or woman that testifies of Jesus Christ and the word of God. People seeing that you're a man or woman of truth and of love and of Jesus Christ, believing in him. And you will be on that island. Jesus said that the world's going to hate you because it first hated me. And you will feel isolated at that time. Maybe isolated from your family. Maybe isolated from your spouse. Maybe isolated from coworkers, from old friends. You will feel isolated when we live for Christ. But I want to encourage you tonight, if you're feeling that, there can be in those times this sanctified loneliness because the Lord is with you. And we know that it was in those times that John here, Ezekiel, Daniel. When Paul was there in the wilderness, you know, for two years, that they would hear from the Lord clearly and they would write some of the most remarkable things that we have in the Bible because they were tuned into the Lord. And I pray if you feel that even here tonight, isolated, 
on whatever island you may be because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ that you have, good news, the Lord wants to speak to you in a powerful, powerful way. And he wants to draw you to himself. It's not a time to to draw away from the Lord. It's a time to draw close to the Lord that you will see him more clearly and hear his voice and be comforted. I think as Christians, we need to come to that place and understand this, that the world isn't going to applaud us because we're Christians. The world's going to come against us. And in those isolated times, know this, that we're here for each other. We need each other. Amen? And that the Lord, most of all, that he is with you and desires to speak to you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these few verses just loaded so much here to encourage us. And, Lord, I do pray that, and, Lord, going through this book, again, the primary purpose, the priority is Jesus is revealed to us more clearly. His power, his glory, his majesty, he's on the throne, he's coming back. All things in this world is culminating to an end to where the kingdom of God is going to be established forever. So, Lord, may it bring us great comfort. And I pray here tonight, I first of all want to pray because I know not only the sanctuary full, but the coffee shop's full. I know that people are listening on the live stream. If there's anyone here, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, that the invitation is given for you to come. He is the Lord of Lord and the King of all kings, that he went to the cross to die for you. And you can be washed your sins by the blood of Jesus by coming in faith and have peace with God. Because the Bible says very clearly that our sins have separated us from God, that we're spiritually dead, that the wages of sin is death, Romans chapter 6. But the free gift of salvation is given to us through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And he went to the cross because he loves you. He loves you. And he wants you to come and call out to him. And ask for forgiveness to recognize that the greatest need that you have is to be forgiven of sin and to submit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Will you do that tonight? Ah, He wants to make you alive, spiritually alive, forgive you, bring you in the right relationship with the Father. For you to experience the abundant life as you walk in the newness of life and have a new beginning, you're not going to find it living for yourself or living for the world. No one else died for you. No one else died for you. No one else rose from the grave conquering sin and death. Jesus did. He proved that he's the son of God. And he says the invitation to come, believe in me, and call on the name of the Lord. You can do that right now. Today is the day of salvation. It's the most important decision that you will ever make in your life. It has eternal consequences. You can't earn your salvation. You can't merit it. You can't work for it. It is coming by faith alone, surrendering your life to him. Will you do that right now? You can do that right where you are. You can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I confess that I am a sinner. Forgive me. I believe you died on that cross for me to wash my sins away. You rose again. You're speaking to my heart. Sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for hearing my prayer. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for your love for me. And I want to walk in the newness of life. I want to know you and enjoy you to walk in your ways. So thank you for bringing me here tonight and for saving me and bringing me to the family of God. Amen. And listen, if you-